Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is social PR maven Ariel Hyatt. But first of all, let's look at some trends in movie licensing. Things are changing in that part of the business, and it's actually getting better if you're an indie musician. Now, these trends were spotted by music and sound design company Song Zoo. The very first thing is that scores are now being pared down quite a bit. There's fewer instruments, and there have been smaller orchestras used thanks to COVID. Now, is that going to change now that we're coming out of the pandemic? Well, who knows, but the trends seem to stay this way for a little while, so I would expect that to happen. That being said, the big, epic films, they still like big scores, so that's not going away in that particular genre. Another trend is seldom used instruments. So in other words, ancient instruments that just aren't heard that often are now being used a lot. This has actually been a trick by composers for a long time. In trying to get something new into a soundtrack, they would rely on sounds that you just don't hear all that often. It's one of the reasons why synthesizers were quickly adopted when they first came out. Another trend is nostalgic music, like old soul music. That seems to be a big one. This is a good one. There are more original music and licensed tracks being used in film soundtracks than ever before. And more of them use vocals, especially when the protagonist is on the screen. So this is a really good thing for indie artists, because for a long time... The score was a score, the composer came up with it, and there might have been a song on the closing credits, but now we're seeing more and more in the film as well. Now, whenever there's a reboot, what you're going to find is more reimagined themes and songs from the original. So instead of just using the original ones, or instead of using a whole brand new score, sometimes all they're doing is reimagining those themes. So these are the trends for film scores. And again, it's a very positive outlook if you're an indie musician and you're trying to get placements for your songs. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, guitars are facing some environmental issues. We've known this is happening, but it's getting a little bit more severe. That being said, guitar companies are being very creative about how they deal with it. So, for instance, Pacific Northwest generally has a lot of spruces that are really good for the tops of acoustic guitars. However, some of that's endangered. The same thing with rosewoods from Brazil and Madagascar and India, and mahogany from Fiji and Central America and ebony from Africa. Now, what's happening especially is most guitars use old-growth trees, and there's not many of those left where you find construction and furniture, they use fast-growth wood. So there's a big difference there. 
And there's also the problems that we've been having with bark beetles that have killed millions and millions of trees. So even swamp ash, which used to be some of the very cheapest wood that you can get, used to be cheap and plentiful, and that's why Leo Fender actually chose it. Even that's hard to come by now. Guitar companies are getting creative about this, however. Two Australian companies, Mayton and Colin Clark, are using recycled woods that are coming from train tracks and train trestles and things like that, as well as sourcing native species from Australia rather than depending on the tone woods from other places. Now, we're finding guitar makers are actually planting their own forests for sustainable instrument making. So we're seeing this in Washington State, and we're seeing it in Hawaii now for Koa. So these are actually tonewood forests, if you can believe that. So obviously it takes some time to grow wood for a guitar, but at least we're starting in the right direction because now it's getting to the point where you can't find the woods that you need in order to build guitars the way we're used to getting them. This is a problem for many guitar players who may be environmentally friendly, but when it comes to the tone of their guitars, they just don't want to hear about it. They're going to have to pretty soon because guitar makers are making changes and it looks like it's going to stay that way for a while. My guest this week is Ariel Hyatt, whose cyber PR agency just celebrated 25 years in the business. Ariel and her company specialize in digital media campaigns for the music industry. She's spoken in 12 countries to over 100,000 creative entrepreneurs, is the author of five best-selling books on social media, marketing, and crowdfunding, including Cyber PR for Musicians, Music Success in Nine Weeks, and CrowdStart. Her newest book, The Ultimate Guide to Music Publicity, describes everything you need to know about hiring or being a music publicist, and is the very best book of its kind. During the interview, we spoke about how much music PR has changed through the years, matching up with the right publicist, using the hero's journey in your bio, why physical press kits are still relevant, and much more. I spoke with Ariel via Zoom from her home in Brooklyn. We've talked a lot in the past, and we've talked a lot about your history, but there's one thing that I don't know that ever came up that was right in the beginning of your book, and it was about when you worked with Lynn Franks. (laughs) Yep. That apparently was not a good experience, and I'm surprised that for someone who gets into PR and has a bad experience and then makes a living out of it, it doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't equate there somehow. <laughs> well, I don't quit easily, I guess. Yes, yeah, so that was an, a really interesting time, and I think a lot of what went on with my very negative experience was not really having a cultural understanding of of what was happening. And I was young. I was 19 years old. I was actually 18. I turned 19 that summer. And I had always had this dream about going to, to London. And I was a sophisticated enough kid growing up in New York City and understanding multi-culty things. But what I really wasn't prepared for, especially this was 1992, 192 was the, the the way the system is set up in the UK. And I think I don't need to say anymore because if you look at how 
Meghan Markle has been outing sort of this patriarchy slash plantagenistic blood kind of society that's built that way. I didn't understand any of that. I was American. I came from like anyone that's like smart and, and willing to, to go for it could, could be successful. And I, it was a really shocking thing to, to really um, be misunderstood before I even walked in the door and misunderstand what I was walking into. So that contributed to my misery at that PR firm. <laughs> and I think also, um, and I see this a lot with, with, with the young people that have interned for me over the years and even worked for me, when you're smart and um, ambitious and underestimated, I think it can be really painful. And um, when, when you, you come in expecting that you can just do so much more and you, you don't get the chance to do it, that can contribute to a tough, a tough go at an internship or at a job. Just to, to catch anybody up that's listening, this was your first job as an intern at a PR firm in the UK, and it didn't go well. No, no, it didn't go well at all. Yeah. And um, it was a top PR firm. And, and I do say in the book that the takeaway that I did get out of that really crazy experience was the devil is in the details in PR. And even though it was very much a physical world, physical packages, and you know, right now we're in a digital world, especially with music, the delivery is not a package with a bow and a box and a, but if you misspell the writer's name, if you don't know who you're pitching, if you don't do it impeccably, you will miss the mark. And excellent PR firms, and I went, went on, which I actually didn't share in the book, the next four summers after that, all through college and then even after, I interned at the top PR firm in New York City for fashion. And I will never forget the day that the head of the firm, who was an extremely elegant older woman who always wore Chanel suits and her hair was perfect, um, and she always had the purse, the nails... I will never forget the day we had a grand opening. We were launching a perfume at, at, at Henry Bendel's in New York City. And she walked in and she scanned the room. It was a luncheon. And she noticed that the bows on the bottom of the tablecloths were not tied well. And this woman in her Chanel mules and her Chanel suit got down on her hands and knees, the head of the company, a multimillion dollar woman. And she, she retied all the bows because she was not having her client walk in and see anything not perfect. Mm. And it was those kind of experiences that I had working at PR firms where I realized if you want to stand out, you have to be that good at what you're communicating, whether it's a luncheon or a digital email. Well, you know, let's go there for a second. I write for Forbes among other things. And one of the things that happens as a result of that is I'm inundated with pitches from PR firms. And a good 90% of them don't apply to me. I'm always shocked. It's like, don't you guys understand what I do and what I write and the area I write in? Yeah. Then it starts me thinking, well, this is a tremendous waste of money and effort you know, for your client, if you're pitching me and, and there's virtually no way that I'm ever going to, to take this pitch. That's one of the things that you cover in the book very well, that, uh, you know, you have to be very focused. 
and, and what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And this is a scourge in every, my best friend, who's actually also quoted in the book, she's the head of the Amsterdam News, which is a newspaper for the Black community. It's the oldest Black-owned newspaper in the United States from Harlem. And she gets like crazy, just, I mean, it's pretty basic. You should be Black (laughs) and you should be from Harlem, like, or there should be something with one of those two themes in whatever product she good services she gets pitched from around the world and she's like this is just so not applicable to me so this happens all over the industry and it's it's a bad thing one of the things that i found interesting is you focus a lot on music bloggers or i shouldn't say you focus a lot on that but it is something that's thought about more than i thought that that was applicable right now and the reason why after blogging not exactly about music but audio for so many years i've found that the interest in blogs in general have kind of gone down but it doesn't seem like that's so much the case in at least the the recorded music part of things this is a huge problem and i talk about this as well in the book when i started my traditional pr firm in the 90s I had a database of over 12,000 newspapers alone in the United States. That was not including magazines, TV, radio, all of whom pretty much were contacts that were covering music, arts, or entertainment in some form or fashion. That's a huge amount of newspapers. And we have dwindled down to less than 3,000 nationwide now. Mm. Um, And... COVID shuttered another 70 or 80 newsrooms. And for those of you that read your local newspaper and wherever you live, you probably noticed the AP wire is, is where a lot of the entertainment news comes from. So this is even yet another blow for any type of artist that's trying to get covered in traditional media. There's not a lot of slots available. And with 60,000 tracks a day coming out on Spotify, there's just not enough room at the inn, the proverbial inn of of the printed media, unless you've reached a certain tipping point, you have a certain amount of credibility. So I do focus on blogs a lot and, and podcasts and online playlisters, because those are where you actually starting out with less than 10,000 followers or so, and with not a lot of clout, like you're not signed to a major or you're not managed by a huge management firm or you don't have a national tour, you at least have a shot at getting some placement in in that level of online publication. What I liked about your book is the fact that you could take it a number of different ways. So for instance, if you're an artist or a band and you want to do your own PR, well, it's a good manual on, on what to do. On the other hand, if you want to get into that line of work as a PR person, it's also a pretty good manual, you know, in terms of that. And then finally, it's like, if you want to hire somebody, it's also a manual on what to look for and what to expect. So it touches a lot of bases, but very well, I thought. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, because I know once you read and understand, or once you've tried publicity, (laughs) it might not be the way you want to spend all your waking hours. Um, and I think with six or 700 music PR firms alone that I can think of, there is a lot of choice and artists tend to 
not match up with the right publicists often. And I hear, I talked to a lot of artists that are really bummed. They hired the wrong match for them and they were disappointed. And so I, I really wanted to make sure that anyone that's reading that section of the book really takes the time. It's, it's like choosing your producer or your, or someone really intimate on your team. You don't just, you should not just pick the first one because they happen to represent a band you've heard of or a band, you know, that might not be the best way, reason. There's one quote, especially you put it in, in big black caps, but I think it's perfect. With publicity, you pay for effort, never for results. I can't think of a better quote on that because generally speaking, everybody goes into hiring a PR person thinking of what possibly could happen and thinking about they're going to be getting the results rather than the reality of the situation. That's right. And um, also they attach a result, like they, they have a a result that's very specific, like I want the LA Times or I want Billboard, Rolling Stone. And often, you know, again, there's limited space in those ginormous publications. And I didn't see this, maybe I overlooked it, but it seems like there are PR firms that are better in one area than another. And I draw on my experience here a few years ago, I co-wrote a book with Ken Scott his autobiography, one of the five Beatle engineers and Bowie's producer and like, he was going to go out on a book tour and we hired a PR person that was specifically good at local TV mm-hmm. and had him everywhere a- across the country on local TV. And they weren't particularly good at other things like, you know, national publications or whatever, but they were dynamite at that one area. And it was almost like, when we sat down and thought, well, yeah, but we didn't get in this magazine or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, but they never said they're good at that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's another part of this sort of segmented world that we lived in, live in now is that you have to know how to ask those questions, you know, just because, I mean, I don't know how to get, I mean, it happens once in a blue moon, but that's not the focus of what my PR agency does. And we're very clear about, we do this. And if you want this and it doesn't equal what we do, you know, it's like dating. If you want a certain type of person and they are not that person, it's not a good fit. And I think that's another thing with publicists. They're excellent salespeople. They have to be because their whole job is appealing to people who literally spend their lives not wanting to be sold to. And you can see it on the other side of the desk with Forbes, right? it takes a lot to get your attention. And so naturally a publicist is going to be very good at selling you. And you have to ask, you have to know what to ask very specifically where you might end up. It sounds like you were satisfied with the local television that you did get because you got a lot of it, but you didn't get what you had expected. And so that's, that's an interesting outcome from a PR campaign. Uh, I think we got what we expected. Maybe we expected more, but I I don't think we were unhappy considering the amount of money we spent. (laughs) Said almost no client ever about their publicist, right? So that's a, that's a good thing. (laughs) That's a very, that's a very good thing. Yeah. Right. 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 (laughs) One of the things that you focused on, which I thought was brilliant and something that no one ever talks about is the hero's journey and how that applies to writing your bio and, and just being interesting in general. Yeah, it's, um, I struggle a lot with helping artists 
understand what makes them interesting aside from their music, because obviously the music should be what speaks for them. But it is, especially now in this story-based world, you know, we're all, we're talking about our brand and our, you know, what is it we're saying? Um, And I think that's a really powerful way of framing up, you know, what, what is the golden moment that you can pull out? And that paradigm of the hero's journey think is very easy for people to follow. And I put an exercise in the book where you can actually break down the different sections. There's eight sections in a hero's journey. Um, if you can identify which part for you goes with, with what, you might actually end up with what I call the hook, that, that golden nugget that the media and that your fans can connect to. You know, another thing that surprised me in the book, you talked about physical packages for um, press kits. Mm -hmm. I thought they were so passe. Yep. Um, It turns out there are still quite a few older school, especially if you're in the jazz world or the classical world. And those are the the type, those are the types of writers that still to this day and radio stations, radio stations are not happy with, with a lot of digital delivery. They still want to have the physical thing that they can queue up in the control room which won't have any pops or blips or cuts or problems. Um, and they're in control of that media. So yeah, it is kind of amazing still in this day and age that, that you do have to still send out physical packages, but in some cases you do. Have they changed any? I mean, I know that you're not sending out VHS cassettes or anything like that. VHS <laughs> tapes like you used to, but so uh, are the, like DVDs included in them? You know, I actually, my agency doesn't send them out, but I spoke to enough publicists. And as you can see, there's a lot of music publicists quoted throughout the book that are still operating in those paradigms. And I thought that was so interesting. I'm shocked, but hey, what do I know? (laughs) A lot, (laughs) it turns out. Um, The paradigm has shifted, obviously, in the music business in terms of going from an album being the primary driver of everything to singles. So how did, did that change things for the PR business? I think the whole music PR business had to get more nimble. We had to adapt and adjust to that. And we also had to adapt and adjust to informing our clients that delivering 14 tracks to a publicist and expecting that anyone would be interested enough in you, especially if you're a new unproven artist. You know, I think if, if Sting puts out 14 tracks, you know, or Bonnie Raitt, whatever, it's a very different question, right? Than if an artist you've never heard of puts out 14 tracks, not to say that you shouldn't. And I think there's still so much validity in albums and it's how artists express their true in many cases, there's a, there's an arc, there's a journey. The album still is very relevant, but music blogs primarily write about, and of course, playlists primarily include one single. So you, you do have to think in a singles world these days, and it's okay. It just means put out a lot of singles and lead up to your EP or lead up to your album. But putting out 14 tracks all at once is like asking the media and your fans to drink from a fire hose, which is detrimental. You know, I'm curious. So when you get a client, your typical client, when they come to you, is it uh, now I can picture one of three ways here. They'd say, 
okay, we have an album coming out. Can you help us with that? Or we have a single coming out. Can you help us with that? Or we just generally need branding help. So which one is it usually? The general branding help is what they often need and they don't think they need it or they haven't really thought it through. So a lot of times they come to us with the other two things and we say, wait a minute, your brand is really unclear here. We're seeing a lot of mess across your social channels. I think, you know, we need to clean this up before you're going to have a really good shot at, at, at getting what it is you want. So that's sort of the branding side of the question. Often artists do come to us with full albums, which is totally legit. I do actually work for a lot of older artists who still think in album uh, and, and create albums. And we say, okay, here's our recommendation. We should have three singles or four singles or at least a few singles leading up to this album. And we split up the PR campaign so that we can accommodate multiple singles leading up to a release date. So often clients will call and say, you know, we want to put our record out in May and we'll say, great, we think you should put it out in September <laughs> and <laughs> let's do a single in May, a single in June. Maybe we skip July. You know, we try to create a plan that works for them and makes them comfortable. It takes a long time now to gain traction. And that's another thing we try to really educate our artists about, which you just can't put the music out and expect anything to happen. You have to create your traction. And so that's a whole other side of the house. It sounds like you have a good combination of younger and older clients. And that makes me wonder the big differences, especially in the younger ones, how much hipper are they to, you know, maybe it's a singles world and we don't much care about albums, or do they still have that same feel of, well, the album is first? They're better at singles and they're more adaptable with crazy stuff like TikTok. You know, they're okay. You know, they're good at it. They're digital natives. So it's an easier sell. And they often come to us and say, here's the next five singles. And eventually we want to turn this into an EP. Um, and, and that we don't have to convince them to reverse engineer anything. Oftentimes with the older clients, we do. And even with some of the younger artists, we say, you know, do you want to put anything together as an EP? Like, does any of your music want to exist as a full body of work for any reason? Because there is still some validity in packaging things together. When you think about your whole history in 10 years, maybe you don't just want 50 singles. Maybe you want collections of things. So we actually have convinced some of our younger artists to work towards putting together collections, EPs, and albums. How about social media? As you well know, it's one thing to be active on social media, and it's another completely different frame of mind in order to do it with promotion in mind. So I'm curious with, especially it being so easy to be on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and, and you name it, how is that, especially for younger clients, do you have to you know, get it under control for them or they pretty much have it together? It's interesting. A lot of our younger clients are suffering tremendously with social anxiety, with ADHD, with a few of our clients, massive depression, especially now with the pandemic. And social media does not help those conditions. We've had multiple clients over the last couple of years 
come to us all excited about releasing and we say, look, you know, let's do, here's the social plan. And halfway through, they'll, they'll have to opt out of using social media altogether because of how much anxiety and depression it causes them personally. So I think this is a really um, important thing about, you know, we think everyone's a digital native and they're all oversharing and they're all just so easily taking to it like fish to water. But when you peel back the layers of the onion, you will see that that's not the case for every young person. And I mean, in some cases, we ask them to share less because it's maybe too much. And in some cases, well, mostly with our older clients, we beg them to share more. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not, you don't have to share about your divorce or your family or your cancer, or something personal and horrible. But what we do know about social media, and you've said this in, in many of your books about social media, is if you just give vanilla, bland content, you're not going to get any kind of pickup or reaction. You have to have, you have to say something. And so this is the challenge is like, how do you say enough, not too much? How do you not stress yourself out? And I think you also made a huge distinction here. And it's one that I've grappled with as being one of the early cheerleaders to the game. There's an enormous difference between promoting yourself on social media and using it to connect with fans and bearing your entire soul and letting it get the best of you. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I can understand how it could really get to you especially if you're younger and you don't have that defense mechanism that's, you know, as you get older, that kind of gets built in and you can toss it off a little bit easier. But I know when there's some Facebook advertising that I do for some of my courses. And if I were to read the comments, it would make me crazy. I've just learned that, okay, I'm not going to read the comments on this because, you know, otherwise I, I will not feel good tomorrow. Right. You're not for everyone. You know, I mean, that's the lesson, right? It's like, it always amazes me. Like, why would anyone take two seconds out of their life to just make a vitriolic post about how much they hate that you're selling a course? Like, really? It's that upsetting to you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, but yes. Or giving them something for free, as a matter of yeah. fact. That, that's yeah. usually what happens. It's, <laughs> you, know, you know, this is for free. Oh yeah, but it sucks, and and so do you. It's like, well, okay, won't read that one anymore. <laughs> you know, right. one of those things. Right. But uh, yeah, I can understand if you're young and you know you're not yet secure in your own self, where that could take its toll for sure. Yeah, we're coming out of the, or at least we're starting to see the the light in the tunnel of COVID. So, how does that change your business? What's been very interesting about my business is at the very beginning, obviously, I think all of us just were like deer in the headlights going, okay, what is about to happen? What is happening? But we have always represented artists that do not tour, a few, but not many. I used to own a tour marketing and a street team company. I mean, that, that business just is totally decimated, obviously. So we consider ourselves very lucky that we still get to work with artists that are digitally releasing. So our business, I mean, we did have to spend a lot of time working with our artists about, okay, now what is our live stream strategy going to be? What is our Patreon strategy going to be? What are the things that we can do right now to help you establish new ways of connecting with your fans online? And what's interesting is, a lot of artists that I spoke to and interviewed in the early days of the pandemic as they were finding their sea legs around live streaming, especially, many of them liked it. 
all of a sudden, if, especially if you're a touring artist and maybe you went and toured specific places one or two times a year, all of a sudden, each super fan or community of super fans in every single city and state could come to all your live streams if that was their thing. And so it's an interesting way of teasing out your super fans because they could all come to see you. Um, so I think a lot of deeper bonds got formed through that. And it's, it's interesting. Of course, we're all desperate to go out and see music and experience that. There's no replacing that. But um, I think, you know, what we learned through this pandemic about shows being canceled and what we learned about Facebook even canceling simple posts that you make because they were too political. Um, you know, we had a lot of artists who like made songs about me too and about making choices and about not extreme political things, but like the events of, of January 6th, maybe not being okay. And all of those posts and songs getting taken down from Facebook. So that was an interesting, um, we have an artist that works in female empowerment and they took those posts down. It was like, okay, at what point are we crossing lines here? So I think those are other lessons that, that got learned during, during this time and we'll continue to have to adjust. Coming back to your book for a second, there's a lot of quotes in it. Is there one that particularly resonated with you? There are a couple. Kristen Fane Mulroy, and she's my friend from the Amsterdam News, talked about the three P's, persistent, polite, oh my gosh, I don't even know what the third one is, uh, but that that one stood out to me in a really, and the other thing that really touched me was a lot of the publicists that submitted their quotes were people that I didn't even know very well. Some of them, yes, many of them, no. I thought that Angela from Muddy Paw PR had a really good quote about budget. I think often artists, when they're hiring PR firms, don't understand that they're the buyer and they're in the power position. And Angela asked a really good question, which is, well, how much money do you want to spend? Yes, they could charge what they charge, but you could also decide how much you want to spend and figure out a solution there. And I think a lot of times artists um, are not empowered by that conversation. So I loved that quote. And then the, the 11 profiles of the musicians that, that are, are kind of focal points of this collection, those were the ones that, of course, moved me. Just listening to people's journeys and stories and how they discovered their own PR journeys, whether they did it digitally or on the road or at a university or through creating live streams because they had to during a pandemic. There's something for everyone to learn from those 11 artists. Well, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. I think it's going to be useful for a lot of people. Is it out yet? It is not. It comes out June 2nd. Where can people get it? They can get it at Amazon and barnesandnoble.com and wherever you order books. I'm also working with a new publishing platform that will be distributing it to some stores if the demand is there. So if we, if this is before June 2nd and you're hearing this, uh, pre-sale, please click on the pre-sale link. It's tremendously helpful to independent authors like me um, who are, like my musicians, self-publishing. You can find out more about Ariel and her latest book, The Ultimate Guide to Music Publicity, at cyberprmusic.com. That's cyberprmusic, all one word, C-Y-B-E-R-P-R, music, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. 
Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.